This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. What's hanging my overs? I'm Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards, the podcast where Sophie shakes her head disappointedly at me, but it's accurate. I'm, I'm hungover for this episode as well. Uh, we talk about bad people, worse people, all of history, everything you don't know about them. My guest for this episode is Sophia Alexandra, a comedian, host of the Private Parts Unknown podcast. And anything else I should I should I should toss in that? I that mean, just genius. Genius. Multi hyphenate. Multi hyphenate. Patent Fourth attorney. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I will notarize your documents. <laughs> excellent. I love having things notarized. I know. Me um, too. I love pretending to notarize. Well, uh, have you ever heard of, uh, of a lady named Georgia Tan? No. Have you ever heard of a thing called adoption? <laughs> no. <laughs> How do you pronounce that? <laughs> oh, dear. I've been saying adoption this adoption? whole time. <laughs> uh, Georgia Tan invented adoption. Um, oh, what? yeah. It seems like a great thing, right? How can you invent adoption? Well, we'll be getting into that a little bit, but it's not always something that people have done. You know? Uh, but you're telling me cave people weren't like, oh, I'm going to raise this baby. Yeah, but they didn't like, it wasn't like the, a process of adoption. Like, yeah. Oh, you're saying like so, she founded an agency? She founded the, she built the modern structure through which oh, okay. we adopt children. Well, that's children. different. Kind of. It is and it isn't. We'll get into a little bit. It used to be a thing that people didn't think was a good idea. Um, for some reasons, which we'll discuss. Other um, people's ba- taking other people's babies? Yeah, yeah, they didn't like that idea. They thought it, it was a, a bad idea, partly because of eugenics, because like they were like, if, you're, if, you're, if your mom you know, was dumb enough to die, uh, <laughs> then you're going to grow into a stupid person. And oh like, we don't, we, don't wanna, we don't want smart people raising stupid babies. That's just, that's just bad, oh, man. Bad, bad stuff. Yeah, it, I mean, everybody was racist in the past uh, and terrible just, to children. Just in the past, luckily. Just in the past. Thank God we got over that shit. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> what a beautiful world we live in. What a wonderful place. Now, uh, I do want to note up top that uh, we, we're not in the habit of giving, like, trigger warnings and stuff on this show because it's a show about the worst people in history. And we talk about, like, genocide every third episode. And, like, you kind of know what you're getting into with the show called Behind the Bastards. But there's going to be a lot of talk about child death and molestation in this one. Uh, so heads up, everybody. It's I'm so glad this is the episode I got invited. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on, Sophia. <laughs> I was like, my brand should get more edgy. <laughs> this might be the darkest one we do. Uh, I welcome the challenge. She's pretty bad. I am the knight. Yeah. Uh, we are all the knight. 
Yeah. Now, uh, in 1848, Europe was convulsed by a series of violent revolutions, many of which threatened to upend the centuries-old order and reign in what the elites, at least, considered to be an era of unspeakable chaos. The United States did not experience this wave of revolutions, of course, but many of our richest assholes watched what was going on in Europe and got real scared. Like, mm. They didn't want that happening here. Saw, saw Europe doing a lot of revolutions, and we're like, we don't want none of that. The socialism mm-hmm. thing looks real scary. Let's make sure that doesn't happen. So one of these guys was a dude named Charles Loring Brace. Uh, Charles was a Protestant minister, and he founded the Children's Aid Society of New York in 1853 and started the first American orphan trains. Have you heard of the orphan trains? No. Neither had I before I started researching this. It's it's pretty fucked up. Sounds like an amazing Disneyland ride. It does. It sounds like a Disneyland ride, but it actually reads like a particularly dark Charles Dickens book. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the purpose of these trains was to transport abandoned children from the cities, particularly New York, into the and uh, and take them into the newly colonized American West. Uh, so at the time, Charles wrote, "Quote: There are thousands upon thousands in New York who have no assignable home and flirt from attic to attic in cellar to cellar. Moreover, the cultivators of our soil in America are the most solid and intelligent class." So Charles was concerned because most of these orphans were the children of immigrants. Uh, He wanted them exposed to what he called the civilizing influences of American life so that they would not grow into socialist revolutionaries. So he saw all these kids hanging out in, like, New York and stuff and was like, these kids are going to grow up to be, like, scruffy, bearded socialists, and they're going to overthrow, like, society. He was just envisioning, like, Williamsburg. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, no hipsters here. I Mm -hmm. don't want, let's bust them out to California, the least hip place. It it was actually a lot more like Ohio at that point. Um, Like, like, like we weren't, we weren't that far west with most of our expansion yet. I was just making a joke. Sorry. Excuse me. I thought this was a fun podcast. (laughs) No, I'm the bastard. You are. You're the main bastard. That is like behind every bastard is a woman who's just trying to make a joke. (laughs) (laughs) I love that listeners couldn't see because this is a a, an audio medium. But as soon as say what (laughs) when I said I was the real bastard, Sophie started very enthusiastically pumping her fist, Um, (laughs) like it was the end of uh, mm -hmm. Breakfast Club. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I am I am the the monster at the end of the the series. The last episode is just going to be about me. It's a pretty great reveal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you've seen me throwing pens. Like you know how 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 terrible I can be when the mics are off. Terrible at throwing, sure. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I just threw another pen. You got one pen left. You better. Yeah, but you better wait for the most appropriate moment. There's other throwables. I could throw those dog treats. Oh, no, don't do that. The dog shouldn't suffer. Sophie looks very angry when I talk about throwing yeah, dog treats. Yeah, her face is not, uh, one of do not joke about the treats. Do not joke about the dog treats. Lesson learned. So, uh, Charles Brace uh, was concerned because there were a lot of orphans, and he thought they were going to grow up into scruffy-bearded socialists. Uh, so he wanted to send them out to farms in order to get them civilized. From 1854 to 1929, roughly 200,000 children were sent west from New York to the countryside. And on paper, it doesn't seem like it was necessarily a terrible thing, right? You know, you, you got all these kids, they don't have parents, send them out west, they can live on a nice farm, get that clean farm air, you know? Could be could be a good idea. Could be separated from the only stuff and people they've ever known. Well, yeah, that part's pretty dark, too. <laughs> it, it actually gets a lot darker. Um, so most Americans, part, part of what made it dark is that most Americans at this point uh, hated the shit out of foreign-born immigrants, and like a lot of these kids were like Italian and German. Again, and that thank was, God we grew out of that. <laughs> thank God we grew out of that. Now it's all just white. <laughs> but at that point, it wasn't. And so like a lot of these parents who would have been from like Anglo stock would look at like a German kid and be like, well, that's not a white kid. Like, so I don't have to treat him like he's like my son or anything. I can just use him as, you know, like a mule, like like the same thing you'd use like a draft horse for. Um, so th- a lot of the families were willing to take kids off the orphan train, but they weren't willing to like raise them as their own. It was much more common to treat them as free labor. So the orphan train was not quite child slavery, but it wasn't super far from child slavery either. And it was, it was basically child slavery. Um, so I'm going to quote from a Chicago Tribune article on the subject. Quote, in 1888, 
the New York Juvenile Asylum distributed flyers announcing that it was bringing a group of children ranging from 7 to 15 years old to Rockford on September 6th. They may be taken at first upon trial for four weeks and afterwards, if all parties are satisfied, under indenture. Girls until 18 and boys until 21 years of age. Ha ha. So, Suckers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Place to have a vagina like once every thousand times yeah. in history. <laughs> you don't have to be a farm slave as long if you're a lady. Like sure we'll be raped, but it ends at 18. Oh God, yeah, you're right. They all got a hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, the past. Well, I mean, you wanted me to come on on the dark. No, episode, I, you're hundred percent right. And I'm darkening right. it right up. Yeah, uh, Marguerite Thompson was one of those little kids. She later recalled to a to the Tribune a scene that does seem eerily reminiscent of a slave auction. Quote, their skinny muscles being poked and squeezed on the station platforms before they were taken in by families who wanted little more than farmhands and showed them little affection. So, like, they would literally train these kids over to, like, some town in the Midwest and, like, set up an auction, oct- like, like put them up on, like, a block and, like, look at this one's muscles. This, will, this kid will push a hoe real good. This kid can be good at farming. Like, pick up these kids. They're yours until they're 18 or 21. Like, yeah, it, it was an indentured yeah, but, child know, slave thing. Sure, but black people didn't even get out at 18 or 21. No, it's certainly not that bad. It's not nearly that bad. Um, but it happened until 1929, which was kind of shocking to me that, like, up until... Like when my grandpa was a kid, they were sending kids west on trains and making them indentured servants until the age of 18. It's gross. Uh, Thompson was taken in by a Nebraska family at age six and made to wash dishes by a foster mother who she said never gave her so much as a glass of milk. All she got from me was to work. I never got any love in that home. So it was like an indentured child labor trains. This is how kids were treated uh, in up until the 1920s. Uh, and the it really orf- gives a dark meaning to I choo choo choose you, right? Oh, oh yeah, you I choo choo choose you to get kicked in the head by a mule trying to trying to till my my farmland and buried in the back ten. So sad. Yeah, that probably happened a lot. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of little kids buried on a lot of little farms out in the Midwest. And the orphan trains weren't even the worst-case scenario for parentless children in New York City. Most abandoned babies were just found dead by the cops. The ones who survived were taken to Bellevue Hospital, where, according to Barbara Raymond, quote, They were randomly assigned religions and names. An infant found in an alley would be named Charlie Alley. A girl found under a cherry tree near a hill would become Cherry Hill. Infants whose discovery coincided with a sensational murder trial were named after the victims, witnesses, or perpetrators. The abandoned children were cared for by prisoners, and if they survived... Wait, wait, wait. They were named after perpetrators? Yeah. (laughs) That is so fucked up. Just because, like, there's a famous murder in the newspaper, and you find an abandoned... They're like, you'll be little Charlie Manson. (laughs) Yeah, little little Charlie Manson. Look at you. That is so bizarre. (laughs) such a weird thing to do. I love that you skipped over that. Like, that wasn't the weirdest part of the whole thing. I I mean, randomly assigning religions is pretty weird like, you look like well, but a isn't everybody <laughs> christian at that point or protestant or whatever I mean, the there's fuck? jewish people too but like i like just the idea that like you're randomly being like uh protestant for you yeah catholic for you like you look like you'd be i'm more disturbed by the yeah i mean yeah and also naming a girl cherry hill it's like that's the earliest stripper name <laughs> right yeah there's not a lot of not, uh, a, not lot a lot of, of professions yeah after that I Charlie am... Alley has a lot of options. <laughs> Charlie Cherry Alley. Hill, not that no, many. No, I'm sorry. Charlie Alley is going to grow up to be a card shark, and we all know Charlie that. Alley? Alley sounds like it could be anything. Honestly, he could be... Charlie Alley could be an actor. Charlie Alley. Yeah, I mean, it does... I, I, one thing I'm excited for when this drops is all the people on Twitter with last names that are Hill and Alley realizing, like, where their family came from. <laughs> somebody, somebody found your uncle in a ditch. <laughs> like... I mean, maybe, or they just had that last name. Listener, uh, don't don't step off that ledge. Things are, <laughs> things are good. I hope that's not Mr. the Mr. Hill, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, but Mr. Manson, yeah, know, bad news. <laughs> yeah. So, children's asylums uh, is where most of these kids who survived wound up, and they were not safe places. The infant mortality rate at children's asylums averaged about 50%. In New- oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Half the kids died? In the good ones. Oh, uh, my God. In the bad ones, like New York's Randall Island, infant mortality rate was 100%. What? <laughs> yeah, you just send babies off to die. They- who is working at this fucking... <laughs> Death asylum. Uh, a lot of them are prisoners. Oh, so they don't give a shit. No, like a lot of them are like violent criminals and stuff who are like, well, you, we got to do something with you. Let's have you take care of babies. 
What? Kind of the point of building two is like people didn't care about babies back then. (laughs) Like a lot of it's probably that like so many babies died, like just because like you don't have vaccine, you don't have like antibiotics and stuff, like so infant mortality is a lot higher. But like, but it's not a hundred (laughs) percent. No, it's not a hundred percent unless you're at Randall's Island. Oh my God! How do you tell a kid they're going to Randall Island and them not flip the fuck out because they know everyone just dies there? Well, these are infants. Older oh. kids didn't have a 100% mortality rate. But if you're These shipping a baby infants. there, they're just not going to make it. Oh, man. That's just the baby death island. Oh, man. So if you live in Randall's Island, there's probably a lot of baby ghosts hanging around there. That's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up, right? Now, uh, How do you I'll, ship a baby? In a crate? I, yeah, I feel like they were just putting them they? in boxes. Yeah. Catapults, maybe. like. Who's, that, who's taking care of a, of a shipment of babies? I mean, it doesn't sound like anyone is. I think they're just probably dying on the way there. Yeah, I think a lot of them did die in transport. I think there probably wasn't a lot of feeding going on. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I can't even picture a baby train that would be appropriately suited. No, like, I can't. Every time it would stop, like, the babies would just slide off the seats. <laughs> There's no way. There's no way this could work. Yeah, that's probably where most of that mortality rate went down. I mean, honestly, I'm imagining one person minding a whole train full of babies because they don't care about them. And I'm imagining that person being very drunk because it's like you're on a train full of babies. 100 percent. You'll (laughs) be drinking. They're not going to stop Everyone's shitting themselves and crying. Yeah, I would be drinking, too, even if I wasn't going to kill the babies. Yeah, yeah, we would. Which I probably would to get some sleep. Yeah. Uh, if I was a monster. You you joke about that, but that's literally the next thing we're about to talk about. I'm not joking about that. There's a Chekhov <laughs> short story where there's uh so, you know, Russian Russia I'm Russian, so okay. uh, Russians had in, uh had serfs, you know, for mm-hmm. a really long time, which is just like white people owning white people. Yeah. And uh then there's a Chekhov short story about this little girl who's like taking care of a baby and she's just is exhausted and wants to sleep because she's essentially, you know, uh, a child slave. Yeah. She's like rocking the baby. And in the end, she just wants some sleep and she like smothers the baby. Not on purpose, but because she's so like delirious and fucked up. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Children got murdered. Yeah. just So people could get sleep. And that's what we're about to talk about next. Uh, the baby farms. Uh, so there were baby farms back then. Uh, that's crazy because babies can't breed. No, no, they cannot. You can't milk them. What a terrible farm. Yeah, it's a terrible idea for a farm. Um, like, so what was actually going on is that like there, were, the, the, there would be houses and uh, apartments where, you know, since there were so many extra babies and it was so terrible to send them to asylums, sometimes the government would pay uh, women to take care of these babies. And, and so like a woman would wind up with like a house full of babies. Now, some of the baby farmers received regular stipends from the government and just had a, and thus had an incentive to like take care of the infants that the government was handing them. But many of them were given one payment in a single lump some so they had no reason to keep the babies alive so they would take the money and then let the baby starve or just straight up murder the baby um and then get more babies so that they could get more money that's why they were called baby farms so the babies is what they were processing essentially for money um this was illegal to kill the babies because you weren't going to get any more money out of them but it wasn't that illegal um in 1895 one baby farmer was convicted of killing at least 53 babies (gasps) yeah (gasps) You want, Those are some serious numbers. That's a lot of babies. You're putting up some stats on the board. Yeah. 53. 53. That's like a basketball score. Dude, <laughs> like, yeah. Messed you, around and got a triple-double. Yeah. You want to guess what her sentence was for 53 baby murders? Nothing. Three to seven years. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm glad she got something. She I, expected, something. Yeah. I expected them to just be like, yeah, get out of here. Get out of here, you scamp. Yeah, exactly. Have another couple of babies on the way out. They yeah. are just, we're Take just... a complimentary baby on the way out. <laughs> there, the hallway's nothing but babies. Grab oh a couple God. of them. Oh, boy. This is the America that Balula George Tan was born into on July 18th, 1891. No one names kids Balula anymore. Or Bula. Oh, Bula. Bula. I keep saying, wanting to say Balula, but it's B-E-U-L-A-H. Bula? Bola? Bula? I think Bula, but I don't Bula? know. Bula seems right. It's one you of those... You know what? All of the versions we've just said, pretty good names. Pretty good names. Uh, but she went by Georgia. Uh, she was born in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Real different from the Philadelphia people know. Who knew that there were several Philadelphias? Yeah. People really had a lot of hope for the concept of brotherly love back in the 
baby killing days. Take the hand of your brother. Take the hand of your sister. And then let's murder some babies. <laughs> and let's kill some fucking babies. It's the 1890s. Uh, George's father was George Clark Tan. He was a local judge. Uh, her mother was also named Bula, uh, Isabel Tan. Uh, and Barbara Raymond, the author of a book called The Baby Thief, visited Hickory, which is the town where Georgia grew up, and talked to some of the older folks who'd known her family at the time. She was told, quote, Georgia's mother was the most respected woman in Hickory. Her daddy was a federal court judge. The Tam home was the second one built in town. There were no streets then, only passed through the woods. So this is kind of the world that Georgia Tan is grown into. Is this important for the baby murders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the baby murders are important for this because it sets up sort of how babies were treated at the time in which It's she's good born to have the, the woods world. if you're a baby killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it will turn out to have been handy that she has the woods. That's what I'm saying. You need yeah. the woods or a lake or something. You need the woods or a lake, some place to, a quarry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. quarry would be really good. At the very good. least, a crick. A crick, yeah. George's mother was from a well-off family in Philadelphia. Her father's family had old Revolutionary War connections and connections to the Confederacy. Judge Tan was seen as the most educated man in Hickory, which was not a super high bar in the 1890s, but... <laughs> Whatever. He was infamously arrogant, domineering, and a womanizer who cheated on his wife in broad daylight. As the biggest man in town. You're like, he loved nooners. He loved. He loved afternoon sex. He if was it's famous. not in daylight, he would not fuck. He would not fuck at night. Could, yeah. Couldn't get this guy to fuck like, with the lights Let's light off. this room up. <laughs> he was famous for, like, at noon having his mistresses come by his judge offices and, like, for a nooner. Yeah. Which people I mean, were like, I don't know why his wife puts up with it. And she was like, but we live in the oldest, second oldest house in town. Yeah, second oldest house in town, which is a good thing then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as the biggest man in town, Judge Tan had a number of different jobs in his portfolio. One of them was dealing with all of the orphans in the area. Since this was the 1890s and early 1900s, and medicine was mostly a mix of whiskey and uncut heroin, there were quite a few orphans to go around. Since the orphanages were constantly low on space, Judge Tan often found himself sending abandoned children off to workhouses and state insane asylums, which were even worse than the orphanages of the period. Oh my God, insane asylums? There's no room for this baby in the in the, in the the baby house. Let's just send him out for all the crazy people. Jesus, dude. <laughs> Again... They didn't care that much about little kids at the point. So not a nice man himself. Even Judge Tan was kind of pissed off at the injustice of the system. So he, some of George's earliest memories were her dad being like, sucks that there's nothing to do with these babies, but send them off to the crazy house or a workhouse. <laughs> like, uh, So, yeah, she grew up you know, seeing that social problem as a central issue in her life. Uh, she also grew up quite wealthy. Her father wanted to make her into a high society woman. She later recalled, quote, I was glued on a piano stool at age five, and I didn't entirely get away from a piano until I was grown. She hated playing the piano, but she was hungry for her father's affection and approval. This was partly for the same reason any child seeks parental approval, but she also had more mercenary ambitions as well. Young George's chief dream in life was to become a lawyer. Back in the early 1900s, the way you did this was by apprenticing to an active attorney. You know that's what Kim Kardashian's doing right now. It is. Didn't she help get someone out of, like, she prison did. or something? Yeah, it seems like, But okay. apparently she had worked for months beforehand. I just read this Vogue article. Yeah. Um, but, they were, but they were saying that, actually, that's how everybody used to become a lawyer. You apprentice yeah. for four years, and then, actually, that's another way you can still do it now. Yeah. But people choose to do it even though there's another way now because a lot of them feel like that's, like, a true way to learn yeah. the system. That seems like a better way to learn seems the like system. like a good idea. Almost any job other than, like... Medicine. I mean, you still do that in medicine. Yeah, After college, you do your residency. Yeah. Seems like that is how almost every career should be done. Agreed. Yeah. Apprentice stand-up comedian, getting getting the other <laughs> stand-up comedians liquor and, yeah, yeah. Holding their... Holding Gluing their, their broken dreams back together. <laughs> yeah. Taping their drugs to the inside of their thigh during the drive over to the venue. <laughs> I'm an apprentice comedian. Not allowed to joke yet, but yeah, two yeah, more yeah. years. Two like, more no, years. they're just letting me do setups right now. <laughs> yeah, I can't setups. I can't write any punchlines. They but... come in with the punchlines. Oh, speaking of apprenticeships, that's not a good way to seeg into an ad. Uh, uh, also, seeg isn't the right way to say segue. This is a mess. Uh, <laughs> Sophia, help me out here. How do we, what do, you, do you like products? Uh, let me tell you something. One thing that everybody knows about me is I'm a product head. Product head? How about services? Give me a product. Psst. Service head on top of that. Service head, product head. All well, of if, it. If your head is like Sophia's and full of products and nice. services. smooth. Here's some other products. 
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com behind. That's mintmobile.com behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. We're back. Good products, solid services. Products better than the services, in my opinion. But, <laughs> you know, it's different every time. It's actually, who knows, it might have been another Koch Brothers ad. Uh, we've been getting a lot of those randomly. Yeah, what the hell? Who's screening those? Uh, nobody. The ones that I read are screened, and like we get to pick them. But like when it's random, it could be anything. Mm. You know, we could be it could be Nordine Defense Systems Raytheon ads. How awkward would it be if there was a baby farm commercial right after this? Kill some babies, get some dollars. Yeah, more exactly. dead babies, more dollars in your pocket. Yeah, I mean, it's nice work if you can get it. <laughs> It'd be better than a factory. <laughs> For who, the baby or you? Yeah, you, as the as the baby murderer, <laughs> the professional baby. No, yeah, as the murderer, it's nice to not have a job. It's <laughs> Other those... than the murdering, which is more of a hobby. It's more of a hobby, kind of a calling. Yeah, <laughs> more more of a mission, if you will. That's a real symptom of how like dark life was in the 1890s, that there's some people like in a cramped apartment smothering babies, like looking out at other people going to factories and like, shit, at least I'm not doing that. Like... Could Silver lining. Yeah. Silver lining. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, Georgia's chief dream was to become a lawyer. Uh, she apprenticed with her father. They called it reading law. Uh, and she passed the state bar exam as a young adult, all in the hope that her dad would let her work as a lawyer. But, as she later explained, quote, he wouldn't let me practice because it wasn't the usual thing for a woman, and I was the only girl in the family. So he'd let her learn to be a lawyer, but he wouldn't actually let her do it. So instead, but how do you prevent a grown ass woman from doing something? Well, it's the Just early like 1900s. Just like the threat of like losing her fortune or whatever. I think that was a lot of it. I think a lot of it would have just been like social shame that like that that wouldn't have gone over well. Mm. Um, you know, 
She's in rural Virginia in 1900. I guess I'm just saying I would have been braver. Some I'm people were. Yeah. I wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. Most most people weren't. Some people were, but yeah. Uh, so instead, Georgia majored in music at Martha Washington College in Abington, Virginia. She graduated in 1913 and wound up teaching school in Columbus, Mississippi. It became clear after a very short span that this was not her strong suit and not the way she wanted to spend her life. Since lawyering was closed to her, she gravitated towards the next most interesting career, social work. Now, Georgia was a lesbian and a stocky, not traditionally feminine-looking woman. That could Whoa, whoa, why yeah. did we not start with the fact that she was a lesbian? Well, because that's like the yeah, best to me as a queer person. I wish you had told me that. Okay, okay. Well, I'm she, very proud of her. I mean, it's page a lawyer, three. a lesbian. This is very good. Very empowering. Yeah. Yeah. And a murderer? Yeah. A mass murderer. Triple threat. <laughs> Triple, Triple threat. threat. And an entrepreneur. Oh shit. Yeah, I mean, she is like she's a she was a powerful woman in an era where that didn't happen very often. She's definitely like. An impressive figure, uh, but also not in, a, not in the best way. Um, but yeah, so she Jealous. yeah she was she was a, a, a stocky. She was like a, a heavy build and such, and so she wasn't like a traditionally feminine looking person, um, which was a difficult thing to deal with in 1906 in particular. Um, so she did not fit in well with high society. She didn't like doing the parties and galas and wearing the dresses and stuff. Uh, and so charity work when she was like a teenager was kind of, she called it her refuge, like during her adolescent years. Um, and it kept her out of parties and stuff. So like, while other girls would be doing like cotillions and stuff like that, you know, the old South sort of thing. Sure. She would be, uh, working in poor houses, volunteering and stuff. Well, it sounds great. And I think was at the start. Like, I think she came into this out of a place of wanting to help people. Uh, the genesis of George's career came when she was an adolescent, and her father got involved in the case of a single mother who had gotten heavily addicted to the morphine in her cough syrup. At that point, the penalty for drug addiction was to be sent to an insane asylum. Uh, because, again, it was 1906, her children were institutionalized with her. Georgia later recalled to a reporter, quote, Hours later, the mother cried out something about her baby as the effects of the dope began to wear off. Officials at the institution called my father about it. The whole family had retired, but we got up and drove into the country. And there, at, under a pile of filthy rags in a corner of a shack, we found a pitiful baby which had evidently been given a little bit of dope. So they find this, like, a baby that had been abandoned by this woman who was addicted to the morphine and her cough syrup and, like, pulled it out of the house after, like, the woman in the asylum, like, realized that she'd left her baby behind. So the Tans took the baby back to their house, and Georgia took care of it for a time. It and the young mother's other kids were eventually sent to an orphanage. This event seems to have inspired much of Georgia's later career. A few years later, when Georgia was 15, her father placed two children in the protection of the Mississippi Children's Home Society. These kids were not orphans, though. As Georgia later recalled, quote, The father was a man of intelligence, but of a mean disposition that was always getting him into trouble. The mother was from an ordinary poor family. The children were sweet, attractive in appearance. And Georgia was able to use their attractive appearance to basically market the kids to a wealthy family in town. This rich family adopted both children. This was the first adoption Georgia arranged, again, when she was 15 years old. Speaking years later to a reporter, she considered it a huge success. The girl now has a degree in music. The boy has finished his law degree and begun his practice. Each was given an opportunity and made the most of it. So there's some darkness in that story. These kids were not separated from their parents because their parents were abusive or so drugged up that they couldn't take care of them. The dad, you know, was in jail a lot for disorderly conduct and the mother was poor. That's Well, it. the dad probably beat them. I mean, yeah, but every I'm I'm going to guess that was like every family in in town at that point. Sure. Yeah. Uh but like she she didn't like specifically state that he was abusive to the kids. She just thought that they were too poor to have beautiful kids and so sold the kids to a rich family. I mean, basically. tell me where she's wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, that's uh, that 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 would sort of prove to be her calling in life was finding ways to get poor kids into uh, wealthy families. And also, do they just have to be beautiful? Yeah, she liked she liked the blonde kids. Oh, those were the favorite kids. To, she couldn't sell a redhead. Uh, well, I mean, who could? Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. <laughs> Ron Howard. <laughs> Uh, starting at around 1920, Georgia Tan gave up teaching and began exploiting her dad's connections and power as a judge to start placing children with other families. She worked with the Kate McWillie Powers Receiving Home for Children in Jackson, Mississippi. Initially, she did the important work of placing orphaned children with foster homes, but according to the baby thief, 
quote, she became obsessed with finding adoptive homes for children who had already had homes. She would acquire these children through kidnapping or deceit. And if she oh saved my them, God. Yeah. And if she saved them from anything, it was poverty. Georgia considered poverty the worst possible condition. It was her upbringing. She was from a very snobbish family that looked down on people in those shanty houses who got their hands dirty for a living. Andre Bond of Biloxi, Mississippi, told me. Georgia felt she was taking children from trashy people and elevating the children. Now, uh, that book, The Baby Thief, which is a chilling read but an excellent piece of journalism, goes into detail about one of Georgia's very first baby abductions. Quote, One spring morning, she drove her Model T to a cabin in Jasper County, near her Hickory hometown. Asleep inside was Rose Harvey, who was young, poor, widowed, and pregnant and suffering from diabetes. Her two-year-old son, Onyx, played on the back porch. Georgia lured the sturdy, black-haired, brown-eyed boy into her car. Georgia's father, George C. Tan, signed papers declaring Rose Harvey an unfit mother and young Onyx an abandoned child. Onyx was placed with an adoptive family headed by a man named Rufus Raspberry. Shortly afterward... (laughs) 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 I'm sorry, was Rufus Raspberry raspberry a fake person someone made up because yes the answer to that is yes he sounds like he belongs in like an old like fable book from the south and young rufus raspberry i'm more thinking of like a charlie and the chocolate factory situation you're right roll doll yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, you rufus raspberry is the best that's a good reason i would give him a child today <laughs> you need to have a child stolen Rufus for you. Rufus Raspberry Jr. I'm gonna, I'm that gonna go get one. That could be your life. That's amazing. <laughs> it could have been your life. Uh, shortly afterwards, she stole Onyx's young brother uh, from their mother as well. The mom tried to get her children back in court, but George's dad was the judge, and <laughs> so that oh, did man. not happen. That's terrible. <laughs> She's like, "Well, let's ask the opinion of this neutral judge, Daddy." Mm-hmm. Dad, Judge Dad. <laughs> Daddy, what do you think? Do you think I should get to steal these babies? (laughs) That's so fucked up. But also, you said she liked blonde babies. Why'd she steal this this dark-haired child? Well, I mean, you know, you're not going to start with the blonde babies. You work your way up to them. You know, that's that's just the way it goes, you know? Georgia's methods eventually got her kicked out of Mississippi uh, and then Texas, but she finally found— Oh, thank God. I was like, I, I, I don't think anybody cares about this. It's one of those things where, like, if you're getting kicked out of Texas in, like, 1915 for not treating children properly, you're—that's probably pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's Texas, man. I, yeah. Anyway, uh, she finally found her forever home in Memphis, Tennessee, where she became the executive director of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. She got right to work matching orphaned kids with new parents, but also abducting poor kids to sell to rich parents. It turned, yeah, it turned out there was a lot of money in selling the right kinds of babies to the right people. Now, I should note at this point that convincing people to adopt babies at all was something of a coup for Georgia. When I said she basically invented modern American adoption, this is what I'm I'm getting at. In the early 1920s, it was not a thing people did, thanks to the then-popular science of eugenics. According to the Adoption History Project, quote, Henry Herbert Goddard, a national authority on feeble-minded children, insisted that compassion for needy children was short-sighted because adoption was a crime against those yet unborn. The eugenic threat adoption posed, according to Goddard, was directly tied to illegitimacy. Unmarried mothers were likely to be feeble-minded themselves and have feeble-minded children whose adoptions would contaminate the gene pool by reproducing future generations of defectives. Goddard advocated segregating these children and adults in benevolent institutions where their dangerous sexuality could be contained. Damn. Yeah. Dangerous Sexuality. That's the name of my next album. That is a good album name. Yeah. That's a really good album name. Should see the cover. Also Baby Farm. It's just nipples. (laughs) It's just nipples. (laughs) (laughs) The concerns even common people had about adoption are embodied by this 1928 letter one couple sent to the U.S. Children's Bureau when they were considering an adoption. Quote, We are very anxious to adopt a baby, but would like to get one that we know about its parentage. Are there any homes or orphanages where a person can find out whether there is insanity, fits, or other hereditary diseases in its ancestors? We would like to have one from Christian parentage. So even people who are open to adopting at this period of time are really concerned about it, and it's not something that really happened very often. When Georgia started her business in 1924, the Boston Children's Aid Society, which is one of the largest such organizations in the U.S., arranged roughly five adoptions a year. In 1928, Georgia Tan arranged 206 adoptions in Memphis alone. So, according to the baby thief, quote, She developed both her business and the institution of adoption by doing something unprecedented, making homeless children acceptable, even irresistible, to childless couples. She accomplished. What, she cover them in sprinkles? 
irresistible? What does that even mean? Well, she accomplished this by insisting when most child placement uh, workers apologize for the unworthiness of adoptable babies, that they were neither children of sin nor genetically flawed. They are, she said repeatedly, blank slates. They are born untainted, and if you adopt them at an early age and surround them with beauty and culture, they will become anything you wish them to be. So it's kind of, she's kind of a mixed bag, because that's a, a good thing to yeah. convince people when they think that, like, well, no, if a baby's mom is dumb the baby's gonna but be while dumb. she's saying that cool shit she's like literally taking a baby she's, she's out of a stroller stealing. and like putting it in her she, she literally stole a baby with ice cream once by like luring it into her car with ice cream dude <laughs> i wasn't too far off when i said irresistible with sprinkles mm-hmm. right it's kind of scary how close you are yeah yeah that's insane yeah uh george's babies also came with a guarantee of satisfaction <laughs> <laughs> or you could return it within 30 days. Yeah, actually. Oh my god. She she not year, only but... she not only invented adoption but she invented the return policy. <laughs> yeah, on a That's baby. Insane. Quote, 100% of our children turn out on average better than 100 children raised in their families of birth. The reason is that ours is a selective process. We select the child and we select the home. Now, George's adoptions were approved by judges, of course. It was not unheard of for some of these judges to approve more than a dozen per day as George's business took off. George's favorite judge was Camille Kelly, a juvenile court judge. In the guise of advising parents on how to deal with unemployment or divorce, Kelly would end their parental rights and transfer custody of their kids over to Georgia. Fully 20% of the children Georgia placed were given to her by Justice Kelly. So parents would come in being like, we just lost our job and like we need to you know get benefits or something like that and she'd be like okay you got to fill out this paperwork and then surprise the paperwork was giving up your rights to your kids oh my god that's like when read. they have you know <laughs> in like sitcoms or something they have you sign a paper and then they like take the top layer off and they're like haha haha you just you sign the family farm away yeah. or whatever but in this case it was your babies yeah yeah they didn't want your farm she's uh, smart she's smart yeah Mary Long was one of her victims. When she was 15, she lived on a farm with three sisters, a brother, and her mother, who was dying of cancer. Their mother asked the state welfare department to take her children temporarily while she waited for her relatives to arrive in town and to take them. Instead, the welfare worker took them to Kelly's juvenile courtroom. Kelly turned the kids over to Georgia Tan. Mary later recalled meeting Georgia, quote, She had a tight-lipped hatchet face. She was hateful-looking, mean. Judge Kelly promised to send them all to an orphanage for safekeeping, and she mostly did that. But Georgia Tan wanted Mary's youngest sister, five-year-old Christine. When they arrived at the orphanage, Mary's young sister was abducted and pulled into Georgia Tan's waiting limousine. Bessie, 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 I can still hear her screams. I begged the nuns at St. Peter's to tell me what had happened. Finally, one said Georgia Tan had flown Christine out of the state to be adopted. So, Damn. Didn't want the older ones, just took their young sister and was like, eh, is the only kid I need. You can stick the rest with the nuns. Jeez. Who, who gives a fuck? Georgia was only able but to But I got to say, if you're getting abducted into a limo, kind of best case scenario adoption. Yeah. Most people, I mean, ado- abduction. Abduction. Because people mostly just put you in a van. Yeah, it is better than a van. You know, you're, you're getting put into that nice car. I'm just here for the silver lining. You know? <laughs> it's all about that silver lining. Speaking of silver linings, it's time for another ad break. And the silver linings of these ads is that none of them will be about babies getting stolen or murdered. Beautiful. Beautiful. Products! The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. We're back. Georgia was only able to get away with any of her crimes due to the shocking and total collusion of the local government in Memphis. Some of this was due to bribery of the traditional sort, but much of it was due to Georgia's ability to secure children for the wealthy and powerful people in town. When one member of the Tennessee state legislature's grandchild was delivered stillborn, Georgia Tan stole and procured a new infant for his daughter the very same day. (laughs) The baby was handed over to the legislator's daughter while she was still anesthetized from giving birth. She never even knew her original baby had died. Holy fuck. Yeah. Oh, you need a baby today? I can get you a fucking baby. Like, I'll find you a damn baby. I mean, she she also invented that, like, 30 minutes or less pizza guarantee. Yeah, she kind of invented, like, Amazon's whole policy of same-day delivery. Holy shit. Prime membership baby delivery. You know Jeff Bezos. Now that we've said it, our phones have sent him that, and he's, like, he's already, he's already. He's like, we've been working on this for months. (laughs) Way to ruin it. (laughs) The problem is getting drones that won't fall out of the sky with a baby in them. We've lost a lot of babies that way. Oh. We have fun. By 1929, Georgia had gotten so good at stealing babies that she just had too damn many of them, more than she could place using her usual methods. I mean, that's such a classic baby abduction problem. I know. After a while, you're just like, there's too many babies. I, got too ma- I stole too many damn babies. Yeah, it's uh, we, we've, we've all been there gotta once or twice. Gotta put some babies on layaway, gotta give some away. Put some in one of the baby farms just so you can get rid of the excess. Send them over yeah. to that island in New York where all the babies die. <laughs> Oh. So many options. So many options. She brought up this surplus baby problem to her friend, Ada Gilkey, a reporter with the Memphis Press Scimitar. The holiday season was approaching, and Ada needed a bevy of space-filling, heartwarming Christmas content. The two hit upon the idea of solving both of their issues by using the space to advertise Georgia's babies. One of Georgia's ads was just a picture of several babies under the header, Want a real live Christmas present? Oh, my God. It's like getting a puppy. Yeah, that's exactly how it sounds. I'm going to read you some of the copy from that real-life Christmas present baby I bet ad. you I could write that copy. All right, what's your, what's your guess? Okay. Do you want to have a true Christmas experience? Do you want to experience what Mary experienced when she had Jesus? Well, <laughs> I have some top-notch, 100% blank slate, beautiful babies that are going to turn out to be anything you want them to be. Do you want to have the happiest little bundle under your Christmas tree? Come to Georgia's Babies. <laughs> babies by Georgia. Uh, yeah, that's that's not super far off. Yeah, uh, I wasn't trying to be funny. I was just trying to nail it. Yeah, you know? and you, you nailed it. Yeah, uh, so the, the ad read... Want a real-life Christmas present? Well, here's your chance. For 25 children, ranging in age from three months to seven years, will be presented to as many lucky families Christmas Eve. The press scimitar is making special arrangements with Miss Georgia Tan to place these babies. A December 1929 ad featuring a picture of two adorable babies said this. See if you can pick out the boy in the picture. No, you missed. It's the other one. The curly head on the right and his playmate on the left is the girl. She is eight months and the little boy is one year old. They have golden hair, blue eyes, and good dispositions. Application should be sent to the Press Scimitar adoption editor. Say whether you want a boy or girl, brunette, blonde-haired, or redhead. Blondes, by the way, are in the majority. Oh, my God. So she's gotten better at stealing the blonde babies by that point, 1929. She's like, I know what the market needs. I know what people want, and they want they want blonde babies. Like she, she, yeah. The ads were an instant staggering hit. The newspaper's adoption editor, which is not a thing that ought to yep. exist, uh, received dozens of calls that very day. Georgia ran different ads with different babies every day that December. She called them Christmas babies, living dolls, and advised readers to put your orders in early. 
You want to get that baby before Christmas. Yeah, you don't want to also like be the one person who didn't get a baby. Yeah, you don't want to. All your friends are going to make fun of you. Oh, you didn't get the baby for Christmas, loser. The hot Christmas gift, it's a literal baby. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The ads also took on a unsettling air, like even more than sort of the commercializing of babies. Uh, There's one ad from November 1930 that described a five-year-old girl this way. A solemn little trick with big brown eyes. Madge is five years old and awful lonesome. What? Why is she a trick? I don't know. I, my only hope is that it meant something less, like, risque like, in 1930. Yeah, like, is she, they're trying to be like, she's ready to fuck. She's five. <laughs> why? Why? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, although we'll be talking about George's love of molesting babies later oh uh, my so god so that might have been a part of it it's fucked up i said this was gonna be like i know yeah a december 1935 ad for a five-year-old boy was titled yours for the asking and read how would you like to have this handsome boy play catch with you how would you like his chubby arms to slip around your neck and give you a bear-like hug his name is george and he may be yours for the asking jesus <laughs> yeah this is 1935. Like, we're not, it's not that far in the past. Like, they have planes that can it's go across right continents. before World War II. Yeah. It's crazy. The Christmas ads were so successful that Georgia usually sold out of babies. This provided her with an ever-growing Imagine list. Imagine that she's yeah. running that ad, and then on top of it is that big sold out, mm-hmm. like, stamp that they do. No more babies. I'm going to go drive into the poor part of town and pick some up. But, like, you know, you got to give me, like, four hours to grab the next wave. <laughs> Fuck, dude. Yeah. The ads provided her with an ever-growing list of future clients who she could abduct children for and market to directly. The Christmas Baby stories were also a wild success from a content standpoint. They became the newspaper's most popular articles and a rampant source of discussion for the people of Memphis. According to The Baby Thief, quote, Would the child be dressed in lace or simply a diaper? Or, as was Master Paul advertised on December 14th of that first year, nothing at all. Our photographer caught the young gentleman a la nude, but he wasn't the least bit perturbed. He is seven months old and blonde. Like, oh, my God. Elderly citizens saved their favorite pictures. Young matrons' bridge parties were enlivened by spirited but friendly arguments over whether baby Bonnie was cuter than Master Paul. George's ads made adoption a household word in the region, and adoptable children, their faces illuminating the newspapers that shared table space with readers' coffee cups and jam pots, began to seem part of their family. I really like that the jam pots were mentioned in that yeah. sentence. Like, we want to make sure you knew people were having jam yeah. at the time. <laughs> it was big. I mean, it's one of those things. So, like, this is, again, part of, like, the complexity of it is because, like, back before Georgia Tan started her work, it was considered, like, shameful to it, consider adopting a kid because, like, you don't know where it's going to come from. You're, you know, you're making, you know, you're essentially, like, letting this lower-class person infiltrate a good family. And she ends that stigma by making everybody just kind of baby crazy, but she's also doing it by turning babies into a commodity. Uh, so two babies for the price of one Two babies for one deal, throwing a redhead for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Redheads, uh, half off, you know, you, you take a blonde, get a free redhead. Oh, you... get some colds cash yeah. for a future baby. You don't even have to keep the redheads alive. You can just smother them. <laughs> this is it's the thirties. Uh, eventually, other newspapers started running Georgia Tan's baby ads, too. By 1935, Georgia Tan had placed children with parents in all 48 United States, along with four other countries. Thanks to the ads and the growing success of Georgia's business, she started to get a little bit famous. This brought more applicants to her, for which she had to find more babies. It also made her rich, and this is probably where she should t- we should talk about just how Georgia Tan monetized adoption. So... According to the baby thief, quote, she didn't openly affix price tags to children, but instead charged fees for transporting them to their new homes. Georgia directed prospective adoptive parents to make their checks out to her, not to the Tennessee Children's Home Society, and to send them to her private post office box in Memphis. These fees included travel expenses for a worker and the baby to be adopted and were due in three installments. She charged California residents $168 for the first visit and New York City residents $228.81. Adoptive parents in other areas were charged fees somewhat between these figures. The next installment of Georgia's fee was due upon delivery of the child. Georgia enjoyed handing babies to happy, excited couples, and she often made this trip herself. California residents were charged $360. New Yorkers paid $268.81. Now, there were no equality. Why didn't New Yorkers pay more for the first installment, but less for the second? I don't know. It's probably just because she wanted the money. 
It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's, it's that's the only thing that bothers me about this. It, it's, it's it's financials. It's the financials. You, you just worry the that books it, don't add up. Now, there were no qualifications for adopting a child from Georgia Tan. Other than that, you know, you have access to money. A former Children's Bureau worker later told Barbara Raymond, quote, She placed with no regard to whether children would be happy in their adoptive homes. It was hit and miss. She was trying to place every child in Memphis. She wanted to get her hands on every child she could. Since Georgia Tan didn't actually care about any of these kids, she regularly made parents wait more than a year between the second and third trips. This made it seem to the parents like Georgia really did carefully scrutinize every placement before approving an adoption. The reality is that this was all done to justify charging a shitload of money on the third installment. California residents could expect to spend a total of $731.44 for a baby. New Yorkers paid a total of a little over $766. In modern terms, that's roughly $11,000 per baby. So... These are a high-dollar item. Georgia Tan sometimes sold babies for several times that much. Ultra-wealthy couples could be expected to pay as much as $10,000 in 1930s dollars, which is roughly one hundred and forty grand today. Normal I mean, adop- a surrogate, hmm? like having a baby via surrogate, that's about hundred grand. Yeah, I think it's like, yeah, yeah it, 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 that's very expensive. Um, but adoption is not supposed to be that expensive. And no. at the time, normal adoption agencies did not charge anything except for, like, fees to cover their basic operating costs. Um, and so she was working through a state agency, but she was getting paid personally herself for sure. delivering the babies. Which is a nice racket if you can make it work out. She's a fucking G. Yeah, she's a fucking G. Uh, Much of Georgia's profits came from bilking new couples for her travel expenses. This led to her increasingly selling her babies to out-of-state couples. By the late 40s, more than 90% of her stock was sent out of Tennessee. The more places she sold babies and the more babies she sold, the more famous she became, and the more people reached out to her wanting to adopt babies of their own. This led to an increasing series of what Miss Tan called roundups. Oh, God, that's so dark. Yeah. Roundups. Roundups were conducted by groups of varying sizes that included her and or one or more of her subordinates. They were accompanied by an ever-changing assortment of Memphians, juvenile court employees, social workers, and deputy sheriffs. Armed with papers signed by Judge Camille Kelly, the groups descended upon the apartments, homes, farms, and even houseboats of poor parents, rounding up their children, looking them over, and carrying off those Georgia deemed most marketable. The reason most often cited in Judge Kelly's authorization was that their parents were providing a poor home environment. Georgia wasn't required to explain why she often seized only the youngest members of a sibling group, not all. Yeah, that's cool. cool. Super cool, Georgia. Most of the children she abducted were babies or toddlers. Usually the cutoff was around age five. When she abducted older children, including teens, it was because of specific requests she received from different clients. As her business grew, Georgia began stealing children in order to fulfill specific orders. One example of how this worked is the story of a 31-year-old widow and mother of six named Grace Gribble. Now, Grace had a social worker from the Memphis Family Welfare Agency named Sarah Sims. Sarah visited regularly to check in on Grace and her family, but Sarah was also working with Georgia Tan. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. And one day, Sarah showed up with one of Tan's other employees, a woman named Helen Rose. Sarah told Grace that she needed to sign six papers that would guarantee her children free medical care from the state. This was all a ruse, though. The papers were really forfeitures of parental rights. Once they were signed, Helen told Grace, I'll take the three youngest children now. Grace started sobbing while Sarah and Helen took three of her children and stuffed them into the back of one of Georgia Tan's limousines. As Grace begged them to stop, Helen coldly explained that, We have an order for a boy of this age and type. Grace went to the local juvenile court. But tr- someone ordered your baby. Yeah, sorry, someone ordered your baby. I, I, got, I got this order. Like, what, what do you want me to do? Not fulfill a baby order? Uh, so Grace went to the local juvenile court to try and get her children back. She found Georgia Tan there and asked, where are my babies? To which Georgia replied, they're on their way to a much better life than you could provide them. You should thank me. For some reason, Grace was not grateful. She continued to beg Georgia Tan <laughs> to not abduct her children. Georgia advised her, forget them. Now, unlike most of Georgia's victims, Grace was eventually able to find a lawyer. It took her seven months to do this. During this time, her six-year-old was given to a family in Florida. Her three-year-old was adopted by a doctor in Memphis, but her four-year-old was rejected by the couple who bought him. They sent him back to Memphis on a train with a dollar in his pocket. But they had specifically requested that type of boy. They had specifically requested him. I don't know. Maybe he's probably had a dent or something. You know? You want a fresh baby. Uh, he spent seven years in foster homes before being adopted again, this time by alcoholics. Jesus. Yay. Grace did eventually get a trial, but courts being what they were in 1940, the issue that interested the court wasn't were this woman's children stolen from her. It was, does she have as much money as the new parents of her children? In the end, the judge ruled that the adoptions would be allowed to stand. 
Grace would not get her children back. The judge told her, quote, this is one of the sad tragedies of life that even a mother must endure for the best interest of her children. Sorry, the other people have more money. You understand. You're They're rich. poor. You're poor. Think about poor that. people can't raise you babies. You have a poor, you can't, you're a poor, you can't have several little poors. Yeah. Gotta give them away. Gotta give them away. Georgia Tan was able to get away with so much, in part because she had a tight relationship with the man who was basically the dictator of Memphis at this point, E.H. Boss Crump. According to the New York Post. That is also a fake name. That it is a fake. I mean, yeah. with what, what was it? Rest. Russell Raspberry? What yeah, was yeah, it? yeah. Not Russell. Rufus. Rufus, Rufus Raspberry. Raspberry. That's that's the best thing to come out of this story is that a man named Rufus Raspberry once existed. Yeah, and what is it? Boss Crump? That Boss sounds Crump. like a video game boss that you have to beat at the very end. Everything was ridiculous in the 30s. Like, oh, man. Yeah, it's just a silly time. According to the New York Post, quote, Crump, also a transplanted Mississippian, was the sometime mayor and leader oh my God, of politics. Is that what Crumping is named after? Yes. I hope so. Uh, he developed a cozy patronage with Tan. She paid him off and brought the fame of her society to Memphis. He, in turn, protected her from prying investigations, while city police ignored the complaints of families who'd lost children to Tan and sometimes even helped Tan seize kids. So the cops got in on it. Of you need course, help stealing babies, Georgia? Yeah, not, not a big shocker. Georgia Tan seemed to see much of what she was doing as a sort of class war. She believed the poor were unworthy parents and that their children were better off dead if they couldn't grow up wealthy. This had the benefit for Georgia of making her look outwardly spotless to the world. Most of the coverage around her focused on either the adorable pictures of babies in newspapers or her work adopting out babies to the rich and famous. She provided Joan Crawford with her twin daughters, Kathy oh and Cynthia. Oh my God, are yeah. you serious? I am serious. She provided babies to Lotta Turner and Pearl Buck and Herbert Lehman, what? the governor of New York. A number of the children she stole later grew up to be prominent themselves, including the wrestler Ric Flair. Ric Flair was stolen as a baby by Georgia Tan. What? Yeah. And Joan Crawford got her kids from Yo, Georgia Yo, we Tan. should have led with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we buried yeah. the lead on this one. You want to know where Joan Crawford's babies came from? Yeah. 100%. <laughs> they were stolen. <laughs> yeah. From? Just some poor family. So we don't know where no. they're really from? No. One of Georgia's legacies that actually persists to this day is like... In most of the country, it started to change. The records of like where the child came from are sealed, and like you, like sure. in a lot of cases, you can't find out what your Until past you're is. So you're eighteen or something. That's yeah. Now you can figure it out at a certain point. It used to be that it was just destroyed and like that you had no access to them. They were basically sealed in most of the country, and that's something Georgia lobbied for specifically to make it harder for people to figure out where she was stealing babies from and stuff. Yeah, I can't believe that the legacies kind of stayed. That's what I mean when I say she kind of invented the modern way of adoption. And like a lot of, not all of it's bad, but it all started because like she was just trying to figure out a better way to steal and market babies. That's fucking nuts. It's fucking wild. <laughs> yeah. And Georgia Tan's business was even darker than it seems. Because for Georgia, babies were just products, like melons or bottles of beer or cartons of milk. And with any product, you're going to have some spoilage or breakage to deal with. In the case of Georgia Tan, that spoilage came in the form of a shitload of dead babies. But we're going to talk about all that and so much more when we come back on Thursday. This is a good note to end the episode on. How you feeling about Georgia Tan? I mean, I first made a patch of her and then I sewed it on my jacket and now I've torn it off. Yeah. It just feel like my previous love of her was just, you know. Yeah. Not justified. Not justified. It was you, you get you get excited because of the lawyer thing, and then it was like a lesbian, lesbian a lawyer? lawyer. This is amazing. Baby stealer. Oh, this is taking a dark turn. Baby yeah. murderer, even darker. Yeah. Oh, she molested some of the babies. Okay, I'm gonna head out. <laughs> I'm outsies. Uh, you want to plug your pluggables? Sure. Um, I. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Sophia T H E S O F I Y A, and listen to my podcast, Private Parts Unknown. We talk about sex and sexuality, and we travel around the world. Pretty cool. That does sound pretty cool. Uh, if you want to find this podcast on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Twinstagram, uh, it's at Bastards Pod is the uh, is the is the handle for both. You can find us on the internet at behindthebastards.com, which is where we'll have the sources for this. Uh, podcast listed if you uh, want to really get deep down into baby murder there's more links for you bummed the fuck out the baby thief is a fine piece of journalism on a super bummer of a topic uh hooray um we have a uh, shirts 
you can buy shirts. You can buy beer cozies. Uh, you can buy phone cases. You can buy uh, munitions, all branded with Behind the Bastards. Any on it. babies? Yes. Yeah, we, we do now sell babies. Are you Only running a special? Ones. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I am. Okay. Two Tell us what the special is. Two brunettes for the price of a blonde. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. get in on this. Yeah. Everybody should get Guys, on this. Guys, get your baby. You don't want to be the only person on Easter well, I mean, without I'm gonna have a to, new baby. Yeah. And, and, and try to try to text ahead of time because I need to like have time to drive down to the poor part of town, duck a couple of kids. You know how it goes. You need, you need a little bit of lead time. You need a little bit of lead time to steal some babies, you know? I only have so much room in the trunk of the car. I mean, I'll provide the limo. Oh. I'll rent a limo nice. so that we can really steal in style, the old-fashioned way. The old-fashioned way, chucking them in the back of the limo and driving off. That sounds great. Well, oh, yeah, I have a, a podcast. It's called It Could Happen Here. It's not as depressing as this, but it's... The title sounds like it probably is. It's, it's pretty depressing. <laughs> it is pretty depressing. We don't talk about child molestation though well but it could happen here i'm i'm thinking you're not thinking of like an ice cream party it's, no. it's like negative things it's right? not like about the Holocaust. possibility of an <laughs> yeah of an ice cream party that's what i'm saying no one's ever like it could happen here about yeah. something great yeah They're like a festival yeah yeah that could happen here no it's, it's a bummer that's i love episode. how committed to <laughs> depression you are thank you that's all i ever do is sad stuff <laughs> uh, that's the end of the episode This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.